Hi, I'm Sophie Marie Odom, Lifestyle Magazine's editor. And I'm Samantha Reng, broadcaster and disability rights campaigner. Welcome to Motability Lifestyle Pod. In this podcast, we invite our friends from the disability community into our studio for a conversation about how we can all live our best life. And I think we need a little bit of that in our lives at the moment, don't we? Particularly when we are navigating such a frustrating and complex disabling world. Today we are joined by Paralympian athlete James Freeman who represented Britain at the 2020 Tokyo Paralympics and he juggles racing with working as a diversity and inclusion consultant. He has a thing or two to say about the power of changing your mindset. And the sun is out and you know what that means? People are jetting off on holiday. We look at accessibility and travel and there are reasons to be cheerful here. Plus, our resident car expert, Matt Lismore, will make us wiser about hybrid cars. And then, of course, we will end, which is my personal favourite, with gadgets. What's on the market? Hi, Sam. (gasps) Hello, lovely Sophie. How have you been? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Apart from being a little bit sweaty derriere, I think my other fellow wheelchair users will absolutely sympathise. When the sun comes out, as a true Brit, I like to complain just as much as when it's raining outside. But being a full-time wheelchair user means that you do get a little bit of a sweaty bottom situation going on. But apart from that... I am, I am good. good. I am good. What is new in your world? I'm good, thank you. Also been very hot and also complaining about the heat, but then complaining when it rains as well. Um, very much looking forward to an upcoming holiday, going to Mexico. Ten hours on a flight, though, with two young kids. Ouch. Yes. Um, I have two young cats. Probably not the same. However, I feel your pain because I can only imagine the unpredictability of travelling with children, when you have a disability, you have got to plan for every eventuality. Talking about travel, have you heard mm-hmm. about what's going on with the Rights on Flights campaign? This has been something that I have been obviously, you know, tracking and, and keeping abreast of for months and months. A lot of my dear friends are very much forefront of the, the, the change and lobbying and really fighting that fight. And it's one of those bittersweet moments because you think, why on earth is it taking so long for this to happen, you know? And I think we have that beautiful motto amongst the disability community, nothing about us without us. And I think one of the reasons why we are so far behind in aviation um, and uh, innovation is because that's a that's a tongue twister, isn't it? Aviation innovation. It is. It's because disabled people have not been brought to the table. We have not been included in the design process. Hopefully now things are changing because for me, as a physically disabled woman who struggles to go anywhere independently, if I'm honest, it really saddens me that I cannot go on a flight independently. I have to always be with somebody. And I am. Um, I feel actually quite liberated that the tide is turning 
for for the good so yeah absolutely embrace it a little bit sad that it's taken so long yeah it's from what i was reading as well the the planned reforms mean that you know the civil aviation authorities to be able to issue financial penalties to airlines who fail to you know meet their obligations to disabled travelers so that means that there'll no longer be a cap on compensation for wheelchairs or mobility wow. aids that are damaged on domestic uk good. flights and they're working towards international flights as well Amazing. so because i know at the moment there's just sort of like mm-hmm. you know if a, for wheelchair gets broken on a flight there's no absolutely you know come back from that they can just sort of be like okay well what can we do and there's nothing there's nothing that's done so that's really good to hear have you got any travels this this summer alas no i have not been on holiday for maybe four years and that is mostly because a finding somebody to go on holiday with when you get to my age and you're single and you're a cat lady (laughs) and even your gay friends have taken off dare you um it's quite difficult to find people to go on holiday with um that's quite a violent moment there isn't there should we get one into the studio um but i am i'm actually renovating a bungalow at the moment so um that's got to be my main focus and i think once i'm settled i will be a girl about town and i'll be flying here there and everywhere i have a question for you are you a beach person a city dweller or one of those really annoying people that climbs mountains <laughs> and pretends that's a holiday when everyone knows it really it's isn't. It's definitely not a holiday. 100% beach. I'm a beach bum. I love just relaxing on the beach. But what about you? No, because like, you just get sand everywhere. Like literally washing sand out of all your nooks and crannies. <laughs> Don't tell me it doesn't happen to you because it, you know when you're it on does. a beach holiday, you've literally showered and then the next day it's like, where is this sand coming from? It's, it's so just true. never ending. On a serious note, apart from the annoying sand, being in a wheelchair on a beach, nightmare. I think you have to kind of be dragged backwards and it feels very much indiana jones being sucked into you know quicksand and then if you need a toilet i have been known to dig a little hole in the sand because getting you back off the beach is another fiasco so no i am i'm very much a city dweller i think i think that's my preferred way to vacate but i have some news sam that might change your mind i am all ears (laughs) there's been some news recently announced that there's a new initiative to make 287 beaches in greece totally accessible they're hoping that 220 beaches will be ready by the summer by installing something called a seat track system which is a fixed track mechanism involving a remote control operated chair that can be moved in and out of the sea yes yeah, so you can go and enjoy the beach Exactly. Of course. Of course. And also, it goes beyond Greece. They're hoping to um, have installed these mechanisms across Italy, Cyprus, Latvia, and later across Croatia, Spain, UK, UAE, USA, and Turkey. All this year. I think the question is, however, which will sway me, will I still get two cabana boys (laughs) feeding me grapes? And making sure I don't get overheated. If that's if that's part of the package, then I am all for it. Does it say that in the little article? It doesn't, but I could do some more research for you. Can you can you you get on the phone to Greece and be like, yeah? I'll try. Perfect. (laughs) Okay, so now it's time to introduce our guest. I'm very pleased to say we are now joined by the wonderful James Freeman. 
James is a professional athlete. He is currently third in the world for the 100 meter wheelchair racing and the European record holder for the 800 meters. He also works as a diversity and inclusion expert. Now, before I welcome our next amazing guest, you may have noticed that the sound might be a little bit different, but all will become very, very clear. Do not worry. Just go with it. Close your eyes and meditate and listen to our wonderful next guest. James, a huge welcome to Motability Lifestyle Pod. What an absolute delight. It is to have you. Now, we very nearly didn't have you, but before sure. we, we talk a little bit more about that, I have to say, I'm always rather fascinated um, when I get to talk to a real life Paralympian because in 2012, when, of course, we know that was very much a turning point for the Paralympics. Absolutely. Yeah, the Paralympics were going for quite some time, but I think you know, Channel 4 really invested in the, the, you know, the superhuman advertisement. And it was for the first time, I would say, that, you know, non-disabled people were taking notice of the Paralympics. And it was so phenomenally popular. Now, that was the same year I actually moved from quaint little rural Leyland in Lancashire, give it up for the Leyland Massive, and I moved to the Big Smoke. And every single time that I went out independently and I got into a black cab, so an accessible cab, without fail, without fail, James, the taxi driver, and I can't do a Cockney accent, so just bear with, <laughs> bear with me. They went, are you one of them Paralympians? And I would always reply, if you call drinking copious amounts of alcohol a Paralympic sport, <laughs> then yes. And it became a little bit of a running joke. But we can all really sympathize with that because actually society pigeonholes disabled people into two categories. You are either this object of inspiration, a Paralympian, or you're kind of not. And you're kind of all the really negative tropes that, that are perpetuated often by the media, you know, that you're, you know, a bit lazy or you're a benefit scrounger. So I, just, I really find it fascinating, like... You must get that as well. Like, are you a Paralympian? And how do you approach that? And what do you say? I mean, it's quite easy for me now because I can say yes, I am. Um, but I think it, it goes to your point of, you know, if you are an active, independent person with a disability, everyone assumes that you're a Paralympian. One thing that I, one question that I get asked a lot, which sort of is starting to grate on me slightly is, are you going to the next one? Um, did you win a medal? You know, um, Please don't end up like that Oscar Pistorius better. That's the one I got asked to read most recently. Wow. Um, so there, there, there was that. I think to, to your point though, I think people just, you know, it always comes from a good place. Um, once you take the emotion out of it and maybe take, take your sort of pride out of it a little bit, they just want to be more curious about, about your situation. So to those people who, who are necessarily Paralympians, just say, well, no, I'm not a Paralympian, but I do do this, or I, I am active in this area, or I do other things. Because as you say, like when it comes to inspiration for disability in the media, it's always about sport or someone's, you know, come back from war, uh, you know, a, a warlike area or, or been injured or, you know, overcome something. When really, I think I speak for most disabled people when I say we just want to be treated like regular people. And I think 
for me, it's, it's just that understanding that education piece. And if you're having that conversation with someone, you're being, you're educated, you're coming at them from a place of aggression. So if you come at them with the same sort of energy that you think they're coming at you with, no one's talking, no one's really understanding what the other's going through. So I'd say just hold composure, just, just take a breath and think they don't know any better. So I'm now going to now kind of have that conversation to maybe educate them. So if they meet someone else like me, then I can make that experience better for that person. Mm, absolutely. And you, you kind of, you know, hit the nail on the head there that, you know, irrespective of who we are, we all have our dreams and we all have aspirations. And some of us want to be Paralympians and some of us are quite happy to be a cat mum and sure. eat a lot of chocolate and watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer on repeat. But I think, you know, take us back. Because obviously you had the bug. Obviously you had that kind of fire in your belly that said, this is something that I want to do. So let's hear a little bit about, you know, little James. And, and, and or, or were you little James when you, you know, got on this Paralympian trajectory to stardom? I think one thing about me is, is I'm definitely an underdog. A lot of some people come into wheelchair racing and they like immediately get snatched up because like their prospects. Um, you know, your Hannah Cockrofts, your Dave Weirs, your, your Marcel Hughes, you know, me, it's been a 13 year journey. Um, I, I got into racing, uh, because of a haircut, would you believe my mum was looking for me to do something at the age of 14 and 14 is quite a challenging age for everybody. And I was already doing horse riding and I was like, oh, horse riding is not cool anymore. Full disclosure, horse riding is very cool. I was just a very angsty teenager. A lot of Lincoln Park, a lot of, you know, stuff like that. So I was like, oh, I don't want to do horse running anymore. My mum was like, okay, but you've got to go and find another sport because you can't just stay here and play Xbox all evening. You've got to do something active. My mum's hairdresser knew, knew someone who was wheelchair racing. And this was before 2012. So this is before the big boom of Paralympics. And my mum was like, you're going to go down, you're going to try wheelchair racing. And I went down and, you know, I was the only person in the wheelchair that I really knew in, in, like from, from where I was from. I went down to this, to this track in, in, in Kingston and there was all these older guys. They all sat in their wheelchairs. Some of them were driving and they had, you know, houses and, and relationships and jo some of them had jobs. It's things that I never really considered like growing up. So, you know, a 14 year old James started there and I, I still haven't quite left yet. And it, it certainly has been a journey. I, you know, I, I was very blessed because not everyone can do it full time. You know, I had a lot of financial backing from, from friends and family so that I could do it full time. Uh, and then the rest is history. Tell us more a little bit about the feelings and, and the energy that goes along with, you know, going to Tokyo, for example. I, I can only imagine getting that phone call and thinking, gosh, it's actually happening now. But also, you know, just traveling, being in a different environment, being in a space that is unfamiliar, but also having that camaraderie and that solidarity with other, you know, deaf, disabled and neurodivergent individuals. Walk us through it. You know, what does that actually feel like? Uh, so fun fact, I was the last person to get picked for the team. I'd already gone and competed for GB at the Europeans in Poland, the European uh, athletics meet. And, um, 
you know everyone in the space. So when everyone starts getting selected, like you kind of figure it out quite quickly because they post about it on social media. And like the first round happened, didn't make it. For okay, second round might happen, I might make it. Still didn't make it. At this point, I'm like crying in the shower, like some sort of black and white existential movie, like some sort of Rocky montage is about to happen. And then my dad comes into the bathroom. He's like, first, why crying? Stop crying. No one's told you you're not going yet. No one's told you you're not going to Tokyo. So just just wait for someone to tell you you're not going. And I got a phone call from the head of GB at the time, Paula Dunn. And she was like, hi, James, how are you? And I was like, oh, I'm fine. And she was like, because uh, it's either going to go one way or the other way. It's either good news or bad news. And she literally just said, oh, by the way, it's, um, it's good news. We'll be expecting you in uh, three weeks' time. You can tell your coach, but don't tell anyone else. Bye. And then that was it. And then I basically just had a bit of a breakdown because it had been like 13 years, finally achieved the dream of going to a Paralympics. Obviously going to a Paralympics with Hannah and, and, and with Dave and, and, and all these other parents, Richard Whitehead, a bit like going to like the, the playoff with Michael Jordan. It's a bit like going and, and playing football with, with uh, Messi or, or Ronaldo. It's a bit like, oh, wow, I'm going and, and I'm on the same stage as these people, which is quite incredible, really. Um, Tokyo and Japan in general, I've never seen a country so different from the UK. Everything they do, the whole culture, the, the way they live, it's, it's just really different to ours. When you mentioned just there that Japan is different, yeah, is it in terms of how? Can you just elaborate a little bit? They, they just, their culture is all about respect, I think. They're a really friendly people and like, it's just incredible there. Like, you're very much a guest in their country. And it's something that I, I found really interesting. The biggest thing I miss from, from Japan is their toilets because they like talk to you and like they have like seat warmers in them. <laughs> <laughs> I know that during the time, obviously because of COVID restrictions, there were some Paralympians who unfortunately had to leave early because they didn't have the right support in place because it was so strict. And I guess, you know, when you're in a foreign environment, where perhaps your needs aren't being met as they would be back at home, that can be incredibly intimidating. And I know that, you know, through the work that you do as a, an incredible sports person, you know, you have actually, for your own lived experience, now gone into the DE&I space, which is absolutely yeah. wonderful. So diversity, inclusion, uh, uh, equality, which is absolutely my sphere. Yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my happy place. Do you think that you know, traveling the world and having all these wonderful opportunities, but equally seeing how disability not only is viewed in other countries, because let's face it, you know, the UK is very much forward thinking when we're looking at diversity across the board. Unfortunately, not everywhere is like that. Is that what prompted you to to transfer those skills and, you know, do the work that you do now? I don't know if it was the main motivator. I'll tell you a story kind of to your point there is we got on the bus to the village, people from different nations, they got on the bus and you get chatting to people. There was a, there was a javelin thrower or some sort of thrower. And he was from, I think, I think he was from Nigeria. And yeah, his chair was literally like a hospital chair. It was very much like, you know, the kind of standard ones you get and like parts of it were falling off. And me and my mate very naively said, well, why don't you just get another chair? And he was like, well, I can't because we literally found this chair and it's the only chair I've had and we don't have the funding where I'm from. And then that makes you think, oh God, like yeah, we, we're so lucky in the UK. The UK definitely has, 
you know, some, some growing to do itself. But I think in terms of the, the stuff I saw, there, there was one guy I saw, his whole navigation, he was just on a skateboard the whole time. He was missing his legs. And yeah, you know, I think we asked him, do you have a wheelchair? No, I have a skateboard. When you go and do these international tournaments and you go and meet athletes from other countries, you really start to understand like, yes, the UK is not perfect, but compared to a lot of other places, we really do have it quite good. When it comes to kind of why I decided to get into kind of the IND, the DNI space, I had already kind of started doing it when I went to university. I was like the disability officer of my university. So you kind of manage everything that goes on in the student union. And like you kind of do things like that. I've always had a passion for making disabled people's lives that little bit easier and better. I come from a background of parents and, and family and friends that say you can do anything. You know, you shouldn't be restricted by anything. But for a lot of people, that's not the case. I just, I want to portray the message that if I can do it, if I can have a job and I can live on my own, and I can go to Paralympics and I can have a fairly independent life, then anyone can. And I think that that's not something that's portrayed a lot in the media. When we're speaking about disabled people, we're often used as sympathy pieces. You know, when I was at school, it was very much, oh, we'll try and get James five GCCs, but we don't know. And, you know, he could live at university, but it's going to be really hard and he might not be able to do it. So like, but my parents very much threw me in the deep end in that respect of, you know, give it your best go. If you've tried your best and it's still not enough, then that's fine. Like at least you did your best, but. You're not going to like not try because you have those options available to you. It just takes somebody, just one person to be like, well, actually, no, you can do these things. This is how I do it. And again, it's about that listening piece. So I meet loads of people in my, my DNI work that, you know, that they are neurodiverse. I knew nothing about neurodiversity before I started working in the space. Not really. And I've learned so much in the last two years. And it, again, I didn't learn it from pretending or making it out that I knew better or, or, or trying to cover up for fear of offending someone. It literally is just as simple as, I don't know what your life is like. Can you just give me a bit of insight into that? Once you get that empathy piece and you kind of get build that rapport with a client or someone in the space, then you can have that wider conversation. I think that the trouble is, is so many people are so worried about offending someone. Oh, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I do this? What if I do that? Well, I guarantee you the result will be worse if you just assume. The best thing I have is I go to offices and they, they ask me, James, like, how accessible is this office? Like, what could we be doing better? The, the best thing you can say to me is, we don't have anything in place. That's why you're here. Um, we're going to be honest with you. We don't have a disabled toilet. We don't have any, you know, uh, braille around the office. We don't have anything um, in terms of wheelchair access. Because at least you're being honest. The, the, the worst one is when they go, We've sorted everything, you know, we couldn't be more inclusive. And then you turn up and then you realize actually, yeah, you could. And even the most inclusive places, there's always room for growth. So no one is ever going to be a hundred percent right all the time because disability is such a broad spectrum. What I go through will be different to what someone else goes through in a wheelchair or, or who has CP. Yeah. So I think that once we have those sometimes tougher conversations, we can really move forward that education piece. And your, your optimism is infectious and clearly has got you so much, you know, afforded you so much success. But as we know, life can throw curveballs at you. And I know that Sophie wants to ask you a little bit more about what happened the other day. So James, tell us what happened on Friday. 
why are we recording on video instead of in the in the studio? Yeah, I was supposed to come down and, and do this at the Haymarket office, ready to go, order the cab, all, all good to go. And I live in a I live in a block of flats and um you have to take the lift down. I live on the fourth floor and um I clicked the button and it opened a bit. I kind of went in a little bit and then someone was like, Oh no, it's broken, you should leave it, get out. So I got out and then it just, it just would not open again. It just, it just, I kind of stuck at the top of the stairs because not only did I miss the appointment, which was something that really frustrated me, but forward thinking, like, how am I going to get out of my building? Like, what if there's a fire? Like, what if I need to go and get some food or, you know, someone needs me for something else? Like, I can't just take the stairs. Let's be quite blunt with each other here. Having a disability is hard, right? I would never say it's not hard. You know, I, I have a very good life, I have a very good quality of life. But, you know, would I rather not be disabled? Sure. I'm proud of my disability and I hide it. But, you know, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. You know, it sucks a lot of the time. I think a lot of disabled people, they get a lot of flack saying like, oh, your, your, your needs are too much or you're always so tired or, you know, well, yeah, I think you could be doing better. You're just moaning. But you have to understand that for a lot of disabled people, you have to think of a backup plan to your backup plan to your backup plan. There needs to be forward thinking for everything because there's so many things that are out of our control as disabled people. The amount of times I've wanted to go and meet someone, but I can't because, you know, the ramp wasn't working on this bus or, or, or the lift wasn't working at, at this station or, you know, and I think I would feel better about it if the workers behind all that, especially public transport, were just a bit more honest about it. Like I go to say, yeah, Houston station and they're like, oh, did you book beforehand? Now I did for a lot of them, but begs the question, why do I have to do that? Nobody else has to do that. Why do I have to do that? And I was like, well, you know, because we could help you out better if you call up beforehand. Yeah, I understand that. But like, you know, what if you want to do something spontaneous? I can't say to a friend, let's go to Brighton for the day. That's just not going to happen. I think I've got some great allyship in my, in my corner, my, my friends, my family, they're great allies and they're, they're, they're really supportive, but they'll never get it. They'll never fully understand. And I think that's where people get defensive is that, or I'm not ableist, you know, I, 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 I would never say that. No one's saying you are ableist, but you know, you don't know. So instead of assuming, just, just listen. How do you deal with those frustrations, James? Like, for example, with what happened on Friday, and like you said, you can't just be spontaneous and go out and meet friends. How do you manage those frustrations? Because you, you do seem like a very positive person and obviously in your sure. work as well. And, you know, do you practice what you preach? I, I, I think so, yeah. I think when it, when it comes to my lift breaking, for example, and then my sister came over and she kind of helped me down the stairs uh, and then we went to the concierge. The, the important thing is, you know, uh, the, 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 there's no point getting upset with the workers if a lift breaks down. It's not their fault, right? And I think, again, if you, tr if you go at it from a place of emotion and, oh, I, yeah, why did this happen to me? And, and you're looking for someone to blame and they're the first person available. If you come at it from that aggression, they're going to respond with that same energy. And then again, nothing gets resolved. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes I will snap people. If I'm having a bad day, I want to go to the gym and just get it all out of my aggression and, like, you know, the lift isn't working, like... I've been to many restaurants and, and, and bars where people are like, oh, we don't have any access. And sometimes you don't want to swallow that. Why don't you have any access? I'll give you one example. Back when I was, um, you know, in my student days, 
not so much now, but we went on a bar crawl, me and my friends, and um, went to this went to this bar, and, and this guy was like, no, um, can't come in, there's no access. My friends got very, very, very defensive of me. Why? We checked this before. You said there was going to be access. Why can't we just carry him in? He'll be fine with it. But the best thing that happened was another bouncer walked over to this bouncer that, that was getting, you know, kind of questioned and said, just carry him in. But what about health and safety? Yeah, but think about it. Like, you know, just, just be a bit empathetic. Like, if you were in my position, how would you feel now? You're not going to be pleased about it. I think that empathy piece is really important for me. And even if you're dealing with someone who is a bouncer and who doesn't have the answers, it's not their fault. They're having probably a long night and you've got a group of people and you know you don't have the answer they want, so they've come at you. So it's just about all taking a breath. How does this person feel? How do I feel? And how can I make sure that we come to the best outcome possible? And you might go to another bar and said, it's not the bar you wanted to go to, but unfortunately, that's life. How do you go about living your best life and encouraging others to do so? Like, what does that mean? Living your best life is just about taking one day at a time. Not every day is going to be a good day. You know, uh, you're going to get pears in your legs. You know, it might be snowing and it might be hard to get outside. But I think my mum gave me the best advice when it comes to when it comes to this. She said to me, James, you're not special. And I went, What do you mean I'm not special? Of course I'm special. No, you're special. No one's special. Everyone goes through challenges. Everyone goes through strife. And once you realize that everyone is not having a good time because of the snow, everyone, uh, you know, gets aches and pains sometimes. There's someone who is definitely worse off than you. So there's someone with a, with, with a more severe uh, condition who doesn't have the independence you do. You know, just take a step back and look at your own privilege. And, and think, this is what I have and somebody else would kill for this. Because if you dwell on what's not right, you're not looking at what is good. You know, you're not looking at that bigger picture. You could dwell on this little thing like, oh, the, the ramp's not working. And yeah, that's a frustration for me. It's a frustration for most disabled people, but that's the thing. It happens to all disabled people. It's not just you. You are not special. And that's a beautiful sentiment and message to end this wonderful um, interview with you. We can't thank you enough. So much food for thought. But before we do wrap up, we have a little bit of a tradition going on. And we would love for you to ask a question, any question that we can give to our next guest. So it can be anything as wild as, as you would like it to be. Um, but spontaneous, what would you like to ask our next guest, given that we do not know who that might be? Oh, sure. Um, have you had any crazy stories regarding your disability? Oh, wow. That was a, okay. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a heavy one. I was yeah. going to be thinking, what's your favorite ice cream? But hey, let's just deep dive right into there. <laughs> James from both Sophie and I, thank you ever so much. Keep doing what you're doing. You're an absolute role model. You're incredible. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the episode, but before we go, we have one more guest lined up. 
I feel like we need a drum roll here. Of course, it is time for Car Chat with Matt. Hello. Hi, guys. How are we doing? <laughs> good, thank you. Good, Very good. well. Just to introduce this bit, each episode we end by asking our in-house expert, Matt Lizamore, to enlighten us about all things cars. So, welcome back, Matt. What have you got oh. to tell us today? Today, we're going to have a little chat about hybrid cars. Um, they're, they're very useful in that they can save you fuel, which saves you money, and you can spend it on far more interesting things than trips to the petrol station. Um, but they are quite complicated. There's, there's a few different types, and traditionally the industry has done quite a bad job of explaining what they are, and it's not always obvious. So I thought I'd try and explain what the different types of hybrid car are in a way that's easy for everyone to sort of understand, and then we can sort of, from there, see what car would suit what type of person and what car you get the most benefit from. Um, so shall I jump straight in? Yeah, yeah. Well, before you do actually, because this is really, really interesting because I, of course I'm a car expert, of course I am, um, not. But I was under the impression that a hybrid was essentially electric, you know, and you kind of had that small finite window of being able to use like for 60 miles and then you had to go and charge it somewhere. And, I, and my mum, God bless her, my mum's my mum's German with this Lancashire twang accent. So you can imagine when she goes off on one, it's just like a comedy sketch. She's like, I'm not going to get one of those hybrid cars, you know, all irate. And I think a lot of people are very, very much in the same boat. They are terrified that, oh my goodness, if we are not going to charge this car, and we get stuck on the M6. What do we do? But that is not the case, is it? Not entirely, no. So so there are, so here we go, right? There are hybrids that you can plug in, mm-hmm. but you don't have to. But you wouldn't be getting the major benefit from them if you didn't. So ultimately, a hybrid car is effectively just a car with like a petrol or diesel engine, and it gets some help from a battery and an electric motor. The difference between the different types of hybrid is just effectively about how big that battery is and how far you can drive on electric. It's always about size, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that it is. So there's, of the three types of hybrid, I think the one you're sort of referring to or when we talk about plugging in is the plug-in hybrid. So if you imagine them on a scale, that's at the furthest end, that's like the most hybrid of the three hybrids, if you will. So it's got the biggest battery. So what that means is if you can plug in, ideally you'd want to plug it in at home, otherwise it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be very convenient for you. Like the creme de la creme. Yeah, yeah, let's let's say that, let's say that. And so with with a plug-in hybrid, you could go, it obviously varies by model, but in theory, you could go around 30 miles on one charge, just purely on electric without the petrol engine kicking in at all. That doesn't sound very far. It's not very far, but if you think of how most people use a car, most journeys in the UK are under 20 miles. Most people do less than 20 miles a day. So if you were to think of it that way, You've got battery power to drive you everywhere for your sort of pop into the shops or yeah, doing the school run. Exactly, McDonald's yeah. On a, you know, exactly on the drive-through run. You're hungover. You want to go to the Absolutely. drive-through. Absolutely, we've all been there. Exactly, exactly. So you know, you've got the battery power to take you to short journeys, and the benefit of that is if you charge at home, it's going to be cheaper to drive on battery power than it is to put petrol in your car. But if you do want to go on a long journey you've got that petrol engine to sort of take you the rest of the way. So for all intents and purposes, the petrol engine works like an ordinary car. You just take it to the station, fill it with petrol, and you know you can drive three, 400 miles or whatever. I feel like I've just had a light bulb moment, actually. Were you under the same illusion about hybrid? I think they hyped it up, didn't they? And they're like, you know, it's gonna, it's a new way. And, and where I live in central London, um, it's got, we have a lot of the, the plug-in points and I'm always like cursing at them because they always get in the way of (laughs) me you know in my power wheelchair and I'm you know kind of like you darn cars and your pumps you know um so yeah that is that's really interesting that makes so much more 
ergonomic sense, doesn't it? Because yeah. like you said, people do, on the whole, do shorter shorter trips. Yeah, that's the thing. I think people do get hung up a lot on, on range numbers, especially with, I'm not going to delve into electric cars now, but it's one of the things people worry about with like fully okay. electric cars that don't have any sort of engine is you, you worry about the range. But in reality, something like, nine, I think it's over 99% of journeys are under 100 miles in the UK at least. So yeah, you've got that. That's plug-in hybrid is kind of the most hybrid, but for obviously a lot of people, you either can't plug in at home or, or you just simply are unable to for various reasons. It's not always easy to plug yeah. those cars in. The chargers can be quite heavy and it can be quite fiddly and cumbersome so if you can't plug in there's two other types of hybrids that you don't need to plug in at all so we'll go we'll go to the complete opposite end of the scale we've got mild hybrid so that's your kind of entry level i think it's i've been unnecessarily confusing to actually call that a hybrid because it, it's actually very different to the other two there's not actually that much electrical assistance going on really it's just a petrol car and all it really does is when you're rolling up to the traffic lights or a roundabout for example the engine just turns off and then the energy that the car recovers while you're slowing down is just used to start the engine up again and give you a little bit of assistance as you're pulling away and that's kind of all it does it's not there's not much more to it you can't drive on electric power alone in a mild hybrid it is just there literally to try and keep the engine off for longer periods to save a bit of fuel and just help the engine get going and, and that's going to make that so much easier and and, and, and cost effective as well and for the environment yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, and anything that saves you fuel saves you money mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and as you said, the environment lets let's fuel oh, yeah, fewer emissions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So there's that. So I guess that brings us to, to the middle, the regular hybrid. So th- this was like the original hybrid, which is still the kind of middle ground. This was the what sort of started it all. Um, they're often referred to now as self-charging hybrids. So if you see that banded around they call them self-charging which kind of differentiates it a bit from plug-in or mild so you don't have to plug in a self-charging hybrid but it has got a bigger battery and a bigger motor than the mild hybrid so what that means is when you're sort of slowing down again sort of similar principle to the mild hybrid when you're slowing down and coming to traffic lights or a roundabout or whatever um, instead of that energy being wasted it's put back into the battery so it charges up so whenever you're slowing down that battery charges itself with energy that would normally be wasted as, say, heat from the brakes and that kind of thing. Um, And what it can then do is, if you're driving at slow speed, say, around a car park, or if you're cruising at 30... I was going to say cruising. Cruising down the highway. It's exactly that. If you're cruising, it can often be done just on the battery power alone. And uh, we're not talking far. You can't drive, say, more than a mile or two on on electric alone. Um, But generally, it's not really there to drive long distances on electric. It's more that... The car just manages it itself and switches between the two, and it just does it in the way that's going to save you the most fuel. There's other benefits to them as well, actually. The the benefit of having an electric motor is they're very good at getting you off the line. So if you need to nip into a gap in town or a busy roundabout, um, the sort of electric motor in a hybrid and, and again, a plug-in hybrid, they just sort of give you a little boost off the line. So they're quite good if you want, if you do a lot of town driving and uh, like, uh, yeah. nip into town. What if you're going into central London? Does a hybrid, do you have to pay congestion charge on a hybrid? You do have to pay congestion charge on a hybrid. It's fully electrics okay, are don't. free. Oh, I'd have to check that. I've got a feeling they might even be nipping that in the bud now. I have um, another question as well. Yeah, go ahead. With the whole 2030 legislation coming up, mm. well, you know, no more petrol cars will be sold. Yes. Can you still buy hybrids or will it only be... So the the current plan is no to self-charging hybrids and mild hybrids, but in theory, yes to plug-in hybrids, but I believe that's only for an additional five years. So that is that. The, this is obviously changing sort of all the time, but my understanding is the current plan is 2030, 
no more regular petrol, diesel or regular hybrids. And then plug-in hybrids will remain until 2035. And then at that point, it's just electric. I am thinking of getting an electric car at some point because oh, we're all yeah. going to have to go that way soon, aren't well, we? Well, maybe we'll talk more about that yeah. another day. <laughs> I just want to be chauffeured around for the rest of my life, so I don't really care what car it is in, so long as I'm not... No, I'm joking. Joking. I want to get down to the most important section of today's episodes. <laughs> I want to know what rubbish I can buy to put in my car to make me feel better about myself. So, it is gadget time. Gadget of the week. What have we found this yes. week? Okay. All right. This, this is a slightly unusual one that, 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 that doesn't sound super exciting on the face of it, but I'm a bit of a clean freak with my car. I like my car to be clean um, and my partner does not. Um, so <laughs> we share a car and whenever I get in it, there's either uh, like jam on the steering wheel or, or croissant crumbs in the cup holders and that kind of thing. So one of my favourite things is there's this putty that you can buy it. <laughs> this well, like like as when you were a kid, like the stuff you threw at walls and it much, used to... Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's, I think it's still really popular with kids. It's so yeah, cool. you, have, you, have, uh, you have children of yeah. an age that... that Plasticine, putty, yeah. anything. I mean, slime, slime <laughs> yes, seems to be slime. super popular, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's effectively this kind of slime putty kind of thing. Um, but it's basically fantastic for just cleaning all the sort of nooks and crannies and crevices in your car. And you basically just kind of roll it around and it picks up all the crumbs. But then what do you do? You throw it away afterwards or can you reuse it? Yeah, you can. it seems to go on for quite a while. I put it back in its little tub, but it, it seems to be fine. Oh, that's been really helpful, Matt. I feel like I've learned so Thank much. Thank <laughs> Good, I'm glad. And that's it for this episode of the Motability Lifestyle Pod. It has indeed been fun. Thanks to our guests, James Freeman and Matt Lismore. Thanks to our producer, Yolene Goffin at Rethink Audio. And to our editorial assistant, Lucy Rhodes at Wonderly. We hope you like this episode and if you do, tell all your friends and please leave us a review. And if you want to see some behind the scenes content, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Or if you want to watch the full video, please watch it on YouTube. These can all be found at at motability underscore lifestyle underscore mag. Finally, if you want more information about the Motability Scheme, go to motability.co.uk. Or if you want to learn more about Motability, the charity, visit motability.org.uk. And that's it. I'm Sophie Marie Odom. I'm Samantha Rank. See you in two weeks. Bye.